We're in Matthew 27 and 28. Next week, we'll be finishing up this Gospel of Matthew and headed into some Advent teaching. So really looking forward to that. Let me pray for us as we get into this this morning. Father, thank you for your loving kindness that endures forever, your mercy, your goodness, your righteousness. And this morning, we pray as we study the scriptures that you would impact our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this one uh, is too good not to share in the context of what we're talking about today. If you've been with us for more than three years, sorry for the repeat, all right? I'm just going to throw that out there now. It was, uh, I was probably 18, 19 years old, and I was working on summer staff at a church. And we'd come back from a trip from Mexico where we served at an orphanage. And we also got to go to a little place called Ensenada. Anybody ever been to Ensenada? It's really cool in Mexico. Um, when you're even like 14, 15, which is the age of some of the kids on this trip, 17, 18, you can buy M80s down there. Did you guys know that? Like, that's rad, okay? Along with like Folkleys, which are fake Oakleys that you bring home and sell to your friends in the States, it's a good profit margin too. So we uh, went on this trip, and some kids, they came back. They were high schoolers, and uh, they also signed up to help. My brother was a fourth through sixth grade pastor at this mega church, um, and my job was just to go on trips and chaperone. As you can tell, I'm a great chaperone, right, buying M80s with kids. So, so these high schoolers signed up to help out on what we called a boys' boot camp, Boys Boot Camp. It took place in the hills of Ashland near Immigrant Lake, if you've ever been in that area. And it was this camp that was there. And our whole thing on this trip was to turn these, you know, boys into men. So the, the premise, the backbone of it is we get these kids up there. There was probably 40 to 50 fourth through sixth graders. And they bring their bikes and we make them do push-ups and they ride zip lines and they swim and they just do all sorts of cool stuff. Well, what you always get is a bunch of tough guys that are fourth through sixth graders. I mean, come on, okay? And they always are just, if you've seen the Goonies, they're all like mouth. They just run it the whole time and they're talking and talking how to do 20, do 40, do, and they can always do more. Well, these high schoolers and this responsible adult named Brett Anderson <laughs> knew we had not just M80s, uh, we had some M1000s, like M80s, you know, like quarter stick of dynamite M1000s. Those are sweet. And so we share with my brother, who is actually the, you know, 24-year-old, who is the responsible one on the trip, <laughs> at 24, driving school buses of kids up to the mountains, and we devise this story and this plan. The camp host came over and shared some information with my brother. And my brother turns to the kids 15 minutes later and says, hey, guys, nothing to worry about, but just over the state line, there's a penitentiary. And there is a criminal who has escaped, and he stole a guard's shotgun, and he was last seen crossing the border and roaming these hills. Don't worry. So the day kind of goes on, and it unfolds, and the kids are chattering, and we're all feeding the story a little bit, you know, like, man, what would you do? I'd grab his gun, I'd tackle him to the ground, and the kids sound a lot like the disciples of Jesus at this point before he gets to the cross. We'll do anything. We'll grab the sword. We'll chop off the servant's ear. We got this. So the camp host came back that night, 
and shared some more things of what we can and can't do at the camp. And we take that as another opportunity around the campfire to stoke it a little more. Hey, guys, the camp host thinks he saw somebody running. Or we, just, we don't know. It looked like he's in a guard's uniform. He maybe took that too. And so the kids get even more amped up. Another day goes by. That night, we decide to play a game of capture the flag at night. Super fun. And as we play capture the flag at night, these high schoolers sneak off into the hills with their M1000s. And they're hiding, and they kind of stage this whole scene where they could just be far enough, and they'd work their way closer, and they start lighting them off. Boom, boom, boom. Now, just prior to that, we had told the kids, if you hear any gunshots, if you see anything, hit the deck and roll on your belly, you know, crawl to the bus and hide on the bus, and we'll get out of here. So as they begin to hear this, one of these kids, hit the deck, and they drop to the ground, and they belly crawl to the bus. And they're getting there, and they're all huddled together. And, you know, like, I've been watching our, our chickens. It's really cold at night right now. They're just all one on top of another. And that's, like, how these kids are. They're a little scared. A couple of them are tough guys. Like, if he gets near us, we're going to do something about this. Like, man, let's just be really careful and really quiet. Well, after the M1000s went off, after the bus had been loaded with kids, uh, one of the counselors decides to climb up the back ladder and begins to jump on top of the bus. And then others are on the sides shaking this thing. And I don't know how much these kids prayed in their life before. But those kids were crying out to God. One kid, this tough kid, came to me and he's just got tears in his eyes. He's like, tell my mother I love her. Gosh, I start yelling, hey guys, game's over, it's done, it's done. All those kids like slept as close as they could that night to the teepees of the counselors. They were terrified. What they experienced, what they experienced is what in the 1600s, St. John penned a poem and it had some unintentional consequences, but the rough translation from Spanish to English was the dark night of the soul. Anybody familiar with that phrase? The dark night of the soul. Now, in today's day and age, that has been twisted and turned. And you know how like language and words can take on different contexts. So um, if you hear somebody that's in like their 60s say, that's sick, that means that's gross. But if you hear some raw down at the skate park say, that's sick, dude, what does that mean? That's awesome. All right, so sometimes language and phrases can take on different forms and meaning. And this whole idea of the dark night of the soul, what was intended was originally this moment of of meeting with God and this transformation. But what's been commonly used in our day and age and how we tend to understand this phrase is what those fourth through sixth graders experienced. This moment of darkness, of despair, of trouble, of problems that causes you to do some soul searching. Who am I? Why do I exist? Why am I here? And this morning, as we look at the cross, love teaching on the cross, get to do this every year at Easter. This comes up so much throughout the scriptures. We're going to take kind of a 50-50 approach to this because, yes, we're going to look at momentarily what this means, the resurrection and the power of it and how it gives us new life, how the worst thing that can happen to you actually isn't the end, death, but it brings about for those who follow Jesus, life in him. 
But there's also a lot of other supporting roles and characters that are surrounding the circumstances that are going on. You have the women who show up and some who are at the foot of the cross. You have disciples who were like fourth through sixth grade boys that were tough guys that said they would not flee, and yet 10 of them are nowhere to be seen. One of them hangs himself, and the other there, John, is at the cross, but it is Joseph of Arimathea and Arimathea and Nicodemus. Remember back in John 3, Nicodemus, how can one be saved? It is those two who get the body of Christ. It is those two who prepare the body. It's those two who put him in the tomb. It is those two who roll that stone characters. And as you consider this idea of the dark night of the soul, I want you to think about some of the events that are unfolding around the death of Jesus. We're going to pick up in Matthew 27. We're going to read in verse 51. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Oh, the priest in the temple that which separated the holy of holies. This place they'd heard about for years that you could only enter into on the day of atonement and you must be clean to get into this place to offer sacrifice for Israel. And if you weren't clean, they tied rope around your foot. So if you dropped dead in the presence of God, they could haul your body out like Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, right? Just pull you out. Very, very sacred space, God's space. One must be clean. That now all of a sudden, rent, torn in two. What else happens? The earth shook. The rocks were split. Death of Jesus. Temple veil, they're rent, torn in two. The earth shakes. We read in the other gospels that there was an eclipse that had happened and the sun is there blackened out. The tombs, we overlook some of this, the tombs were emptied. They were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. We don't have time for that today, and I won't weird you out, okay? And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, what took place, they were filled with awe. That is that idea of terror, of fear. There's a holy awe that we can have. We've talked about this when we talked about the fear of man months ago at this time, from this time. They said, truly, this was the son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for his body, the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen shroud, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut out in the rock. He rolled the great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day... That is the day after preparation. The chief priests, the Pharisees, gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. He has risen from the dead. 
And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by stealing, sealing the stone and setting the guard. This is a dark, dark night. I want you to hear this this morning. Quite literally from scripture, momentarily having the sun blocked out, the earth quaking, the ground opening up, the temple veil was torn, the savior of the world is crucified, death appears to be victorious, the enemy seems to have won, Satan and his kingdom are advancing while the kingdom of God feels like it's an absolute retreat. Satan wins over the best that God could provide himself. And the followers of Jesus, they are scattering. Where's Peter? Where's James? Where's John? Where are those who saw the glory of God on the Mount of Transfiguration, who were ready to establish the kingdom of God with Jesus? Why were they not there to wait in hopeful anticipation? They had heard his words over and over again. You would have to be foolish to have not had some of that fall into your brain because as we read the scriptures this last year in Matthew, Jesus said again and again and again, destroy this body, I will rise it up in three days. He talks about the resurrection. He talks about how he must be crucified and they are not there. It is two of the more secretive disciples who take the body Wrap it as should be. What happened? What happened? The dark night of the soul. If you Google this, you'll get one of those high lists that comes up with psychology.com. And it talks about the dark night of the soul as this. It's often used informally to describe an extremely difficult and painful period in one's life. For example, after the death of a loved one, the breaking up of a marriage, or the diagnosis of life-threatening illness. It goes on to say, question, have you ever felt the meaninglessness of life? Unable to bear going through the motions, having no sense of direction, and feeling you have lost all hope. Think about the disciples. For three years, they've now been convinced this is their Messiah. For three years and a lifetime of hearing the Torah taught to them and the hope of a Messiah that would come and trample out the enemy, which in their minds at that time was Rome who was bringing oppression and injustice into their lives. And they latch on to this Messiah who is giving them a new way to be human. He's talking about what it's like to be in the kingdom of God, Matthew chapter five. He's telling them these stories and he's opening their eyes to who he is. And they have attached their hopes to Jesus and their version of the story of God, their version of how he would come and trample, stomp out all evil and restore his kingdom in their ways of thinking, not in God's way of thinking. And it all came to a sudden halt. They were pumped coming into Holy Week. Jesus gets the donkey He proclaims to be king. The people, the crowds, they're on his side. Hosanna in the highest. We are taking the city by storm. And then it doesn't turn out how they thought. And they're in a moment of crisis of faith. Now, a crisis of faith typically is what brings many people to know Jesus. They had a portion in their life in which their philosophy, their way of thinking, 
their whole way of being and worldview has collapsed on them. It doesn't work out for them. And they've come to the end of themselves and go, like Solomon, vanity, vanity, this is all vanity. What does all of life mean? I work, I toil, I make money, I spend it, I eat, I laugh, I cry. What's the point? Vanity, vanity. I've amassed, I've accumulated, I've gotten all that I could have, and I'm still broken, and I'm empty. And for many people, maybe that's part of your stories. It's brought you to the end of yourself at the edge of a cliff, and you've said, there's got to be something more. And Yahweh, the God of the Bible, Jesus moves into your life, and the Spirit gives you eyes to see who he is. But did you know a crisis of faith often happens amongst believers as well? It does. It truly does. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, has life gone the way you planned it? <laughs> right? Like my blueprints when I was 15, 16 years old, I mean, I'd be shooting free throws for the Blazers right now if that's how I was. <laughs> life doesn't go how we plan. And life certainly wasn't going for how they had planned. Their world, their followers of Jesus, had just been destroyed and blown up. I can't even fathom or I can't even blame them for their response or their reaction. What are they? They're let down by God. Like I almost trembled when I wrote those words, let alone when I spoke those words. I've been let down by God. With this side of eternity in mind, with this side of pain and suffering and my wrong expectations of how I anticipate God would actually work and move, my reality, my version of how it should go has looked vastly different than how God established it would go. And so on my side of seeing, I can utter those words in terror and tremble, but I can utter those words because I think many people around feel that way. See, what do we do when we've hit that place? You felt it, God wasn't present. You played the church game, you showed up, you threw some money in the plate that doesn't exist in this church. You gotta really seek it out if you wanna give, right? You, you showed up and you served and you started small group. And my goodness, your spouse still hates you, your kids rejected you, and you're lonely as ever. What the heck? God, where, where are you? Where are all the, if I do this, you'll do that kind of stuff. Let me tell you something. I'm glad it's not how it works anymore. Let me say that. I'm very thankful for his faithfulness beyond what I could ever even begin to muster up within myself. But somehow in a Christian's walk, we begin to keep score with God and we begin to think, this is how things should go. If I do these things, God, this is how you're gonna respond to me. And yet I still get bad news I still have a dead-end job? What in the world, God? Why aren't you doing and moving in the ways I've prayed and asked? Have you ever had your world destroyed? Pain, lostness, and questioning about purpose. This is a dark night of the soul. It comes down to one question. Is God good? And it's really great in the company of the saints to say yes. But sometimes I feel like David in the psalm that he penned, and he says, why do the wicked prosper? 
Why is life going so well for them? It's not until in that psalm he says, did I walk into the temple of God? Did I see their end and begin to understand? But this age-old question of, is God good? I've had many friends. In fact, I just sat down with one. Hadn't seen him in five, six years. Led worship in churches. Love this guy. Um, It's a brotherhood. And he said the best words he uttered in the last three years was, God's not real. And he came to this conclusion because he asked the question, is God good? And not only that, he realized he had some issues in his life and without, quote unquote, the help of God, which just totally dismisses common grace and his mercy and his goodness. So let me just throw all those things out the window real quick. He's like, my marriage was broken and I was able to restore it. I had an addiction to alcohol and I was able to stop it. I don't need God to help me do those things. And then I look at the world, and how can you explain the atrocities of war and pain and miscarriages and suffering? Right? How can you do that? Is God good? And that is the philosophical question that people ask themselves and have to come to grips with. Is God good? Is the first question asked of Adam and Eve by the serpent, the Nakesh there in the garden. Did he really say... Did he really say you could not eat of that tree and you would surely die? Oh, no, 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 no. He didn't really say that, questioning the goodness. He's withholding something from you. Then as history progresses, Adam and Eve obviously questioning the goodness of God. You see a whole society in Babel try to build a world without God in which they can be self-sustainable and they're searching the stars and God disperses them. And then the same question is asked of Abraham. He's promised a child. He doesn't get a child. 20, 30 years go by. Where's my child? I'll go ahead and just sleep with this handmaiden and we'll get the child for you, God. Rough deal for old Abe, right? Plus, question the goodness of God and created a disaster of fallout within his own family. This is where the enemy comes to you. This is where moments of crisis begin in your Christian walk. Is God good? Being a pastor, or I know I got a haircut, I look younger. So for like 18 years, I've been a pastor. It's crazy. The things I've sat through, I was in a meeting once as a counseling session, and this couple, they were not doing well. Um, And it unraveled in front of me. And the amount of F-bombs that came out of their mouths towards one another caused my neighboring business right next door to me to come over and ask if I was okay. Like, this was the unravel of unravels. It's not good. I've sat in hospital waiting rooms where that question gets thrown around. Is God good? And what we're left with is either having to walk with what the scriptures call walk by faith and not by sight, are to come to our own deductions and reasoning and say, all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the problems in the world cannot be explained if there's a good, kind, loving, sovereign God and have all this stuff exist. He needs to stomp it out. He needs to put it to an end if that were true. All the while not realizing that that would have this radical effect on you because you're part of the problem and so am I. But we ignore that. We minimize it. Or we say... God is good. One of my favorite modern-day Bible preachers is Tim Keller. That's no secret. He wrote, there's no such thing as objective abandonment for Christians. 
Therefore, all that remains is subjective abandonment. In other words, though we may feel abandoned by God in your dark night of the soul, where are you, God? Like the psalm we read this morning, Psalm 6, very intentional. He soaked his pillow in tears. He's crying out. Though we may feel abandoned by God, feel is subjective. Okay? It is never the case, which is objective. He is with us. He is for us. He has not and will not walk away from us. How do I know that? I've got five to ten minutes to unpack this. It's going to be super fun. The resurrection. Let's read the story, chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Amen. Come, see the place where he lay. They go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran in to tell the disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to to go to Galilee, and they will see me. Resurrection. I'll read this to you. The Wall Street Journal um, had put out an article on the cross and the resurrection, and this was back in 2016. And this is a man's response to an article that was put out that was very scholarly. It was written by a religious leader um, from Harvard. And so it's kind of uppity up and all the rest. And this was this man's opinion and his response. Had to double check I was reading the Wall Street Journal and not some Christian holy sermon pamphlet. What the heck? Why am I reading religion in the Wall Street Journal? Rising from the dead? Seriously. I will assume James Martin is educated and obviously religious, but he and others still believe someone rose from the dead. I was waiting for the humor, but heck no. All I could think about is The Walking Dead, vampire movies, Game of Thrones. It is wonderful to have religion and its traditions, but hey, man, it's 2016. Time to realize it is all man-made up stories built around sometimes maybe real people. I celebrate the Passover. Why the heck would you do that if you don't believe? Just my opinion. I love reading the story of Moses in Egypt and parting the Red Sea, but boy, do I know that no one ever parted a sea, nor will anyone ever part a sea. Stories are great fun, and discussing why we have these stories is a wonderful lesson in philosophy, psychology, and theology for my grandchildren. That pretty much sums it up. That's how people feel towards Christianity and the resurrection. You're put into a place where you either have to say, this is real, and I'm going to fully give myself to it, or it's made up stories, and I want nothing to do with it. Daryl Bach said, without the resurrection, Christianity is just another human approach to reach God. It is emptied of transforming power and hope. It is a mere shell, not worthy of the energy one devotes to it. The resurrection is our answer to the dark night of the soul. How is that? The resurrection tells me that there's not only a God who loves me and cares for me and walks in this life with me and stood in my place. There are many great teachers and philosophers who died for causes, 
who died for issues and things that they believed in, who were killed and martyred for their faith in whatever it was they were promoting, right? But the resurrection speaks something different. It says, not only did he die for me, he now lives for me as well. And because he lives for me, I am given this new life in who he is. Resurrection means whatever it is that is the dark night of the soul for you, it comes to an end. It may not be the kind of end that you hope for. It may be the kind of end that actually truly ends your walking on this earth currently right now today. But that is the worst the enemy can do is to bring death. Because there's new life in Jesus. The resurrection is a power that changes everything. Everything. Paul was so convinced of this that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, he talks about his ideals around the gospel. And then he goes on to say, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, this is all vain. Sum it up. Get some skis in a boat and enjoy your life. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then as the church gathers as an outpost declaring the glory of God to the world around us, this has significant amount of purpose and meaning and is valuable in telling you who you are and how to be as a human and how to form and shape our lives. And the resurrection doesn't just tell us how, but it itself is a power in our life to do that because he is the first fruits and the promise of the resurrection. He then says, I will go and give you the Holy Spirit, which animates your life and influences your life to live for him. This is a power that changes everything. We do have hope. It changes how you look at yourself today. And without Jesus, I can have a real crummy view of myself as I recollect my past and how I terrified fourth through sixth graders. <laughs> that wasn't the only thing we ever did to those kids, right? <laughs> Changes how we look at our neighbors, how we look at history, how we look at everything. For Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am that for you. And what does Jesus do? He comes to Mary. He says, go tell Peter. And he goes to Peter. And he says, have faith. He comes to them and gives them faith. Skip over a lot. We'll save it for Easter. Finally, the resurrection this morning. I want to leave you with this. The resurrection means, yes, there is a future hope, a future trajectory, a future place for you. It'll be when heaven kisses earth once again in that phrase that hot spot like Garden of Eden, but it also means God intervenes now. He initiated redemption. So remember the character of God and who God is and what God has done, his loving kindness. He has initiated redemption in your life now. He has accomplished redemption. You don't accomplish redemption. I was listening to this philosopher uh, talk about uh, Nietzsche. You guys all know who Nietzsche is. God is dead. That's Wildly taken out of context. We'll save that for another talk as well. But, but he was just talking about how Christians think that they're earning their way to some hot spot, high spot in heaven where they'll get to have all the joys of this life. That is so false in Christianity. I don't even know how he came up with that, calling himself an intelligent person. Redemption accomplished is something Jesus did for you in giving you life, justifying you. Therefore, you do not get to pat yourself on the back because he did it. Then redemption applied. What does that mean? 
Holy Spirit has come into your life and is changing you, and it's deeply transformational. The dark night of the soul presents a loving, fiery invitation into who God is. Cultivating a lifestyle that is possibly more contemplative, more patient, more silent, and waiting on God to see how he unfolds, works, and moves in your lives. Why does God allow this? I do believe, I hate a lot of modern-day preachers, God wants to do something extraordinary in your life, and you think you're going to walk out of here and win the lottery. Like, that's what that preaching feels like. But God wants to do something extraordinary in your life and transforming you into the kind of person that is going to exist in the kingdom when it returns. God wants to do something extraordinary in your life, breaking chains, causing addictions and problems as you transfer your heart's affection and attention to him. Just like some magic fairy dust that comes down, but your whole heart shifts and the motivation of your heart is placed upon the one who actually should have it. He wants to do something in your life. Redemption applied. He wants to do something in you. Why do we go through dark night of the soul? Perhaps some of our goals that we've had, they dissipate and disappear as he replaces them with something else. Think about that. Two, our worship of God matures beyond our feelings. You know what? I love worshiping God on Sunday with you guys. It's a heck of a lot harder worshiping God on Monday without you guys. I mean, where's the song? Where's the band? Where's Michael or Scott and Bethany or Josh or my friend Ben when he comes? Where is it? How can I do this? Maybe he wants to mature so it's not just feeling-based, subjective, but objective on who he actually is. I think we go through dark nights of the soul so we have this healthy detachment from the unhealthy attachments in this world. When things that we thought brought value, success, and importance to our life are stripped away from us, when those things that actually identified us and made us think, this is what makes me human, this is what makes me who I am, are taken from us, as unpleasant and miserable as that can be, it causes a new reliance and dependence upon God. I also think we become more comfortable with not knowing. That's a hard place to live in, in our day and age with these things. Like, I can know anything all the time. Not knowing. Very, very difficult. We shed layers of our false self. God protects us. How so? God knows our giftings and dreams that can be dangerous to ourselves. And without a season of him stopping us and deeply transforming us, continuing to work in our interior, pulling out the roots of impatience and envy and anger, just to name a few things that might exist inside of us or me personally. I don't know, right? God protects us. There's this rapper I listen to sometimes, and uh, he said, I know, you guys think I'm funny because I wear cowboy boots and listen to rap. (laughs) Anyways, don't let success take you where character can't keep you. That's important. I mean, that line is fire, fire. I know so many people whose success brought them into high lights and they flame out because they didn't have that time of character building in Christ. Maybe God's doing that. God also is preparing us for just this higher degree of love for him. Okay. So let me ask you some questions and you can reflect as we sing and get ready to take communion. 
the dark night of the soul. If you haven't, if you aren't, you will. You'll be there, I promise. If you haven't, if you aren't, oh, you definitely will. Who have you let in? You're not to go it alone. The women were there at the cross. Go and tell Peter, bring together the disciples. Come on, let's be together in these moments. Are you crying out to God? I can't hear him. Trust me, walk by faith, not by sight. Can you do that? Have you walked through a dark night of the soul? Have you thanked God for carrying you through? Have you journaled or shared your story of God's faithfulness with somebody else? What kind of an impact did it have on your life? Because essentially those moments are to help reorder who we are. I want you to consider that as Scott and Bethany come back up to lead us in worship. You might be in one of those places, lost, lonely, feeling abandoned. Where are you, God? Let me tell you where he is. He was crucified and buried for you. But not only that, we don't celebrate a dead guy. We celebrate a risen Savior who lives for you too. I can't live up to Christianity. Nobody can. Nobody could but him. And he gives you that life. That shows you even in your darkest moments, there is somebody who would take a bullet for you. There is somebody who would bleed for you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. For anybody in here who's in that place of just despair and crying out, a reminder today that you are with them. Even when it doesn't feel like it, the objective truth is you are with us. May our feelings not betray us to a point to where we begin to question your goodness, but we now press into the reality of who you are and what you've done for us as we celebrate your death and life and the truth that you're coming again for us. Move in us, work in us, in Jesus' name.